Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. Dear Young Rocker, sometimes anxiety is a clue that you're ignoring your intuition, that something is brewing inside of you and building up pressure as it tries to escape. It's a restless feeling and you have it right now. You cannot relax when you haven't released creative energy recently. And the feeling you currently have is being caused by a story that wants to be in the world. You know deep down how important this story is, which makes keeping it in feel even worse. It feels urgent to tell it. And it is. This process is just starting now, but that feeling won't let up bothering you until this podcast finally meets the light of day in its final form five years from now. Dear Young Rocker is what is burning inside of you, or at least the embryo of it. And as you know, it literally feels like burning. At your deepest core, you are a storyteller. There are lyrics and paragraphs and books in you and they need to come out. Helping them exist in the physical plane instead of swirling around in your head is your life's greatest and most important, but also most brutally difficult task. It is the hardest thing in the world to do for you because these ideas exist so perfectly complex and incredible as their dream versions in your head and never feel good enough when you cement them in a fixed, flawed reality. For intelligent people with deep imaginations, creation can be a painful thing. And that is why writer's block exists and why it hurts so much. You will start releasing the pressure soon. But for you now, you just feel like you're full of hot steam. Just like you did as a kid. I'm sitting on the living room floor in my apartment with albums and open books spread around me like a teenager in her room. I feel like I'm regressing and I don't know why. Like I'm going backwards mentally, becoming 15 again. There's some important reason I need to go back to that time mentally and it feels urgent. There's a clue waiting for me back there. I just suddenly feel so angry at the world and the situations and people that silenced me and closed me down. Now, now at 26, after over 10 years of playing rock music, I've only just discovered the 90s riot girl movement and only because someone told me about it in grad school. As I flip through the anthology of riot girl zines I bought, and I read through the confessional, Xeroxed stories of teenagers who went through the same feelings of isolation and gender weirdness and anger that I did, 
and who felt so alone in it too. I just feel so pissed that growing up in the early 2000s, it was like this had never existed, like it made no actual progress. What I knew of girl power was the Spice Girls. I adore reading these kids' sharpie scribbles, telling the punk boys to fuck off. And now I'm thinking of all the things I could have said back to the jerks if I had known about this. About all the angry loud songs I could have been inspired to write about them to feel vengeance if I had known about these bands. Even though it feels too late to start on that, like I know I'm too old, I just want to do it now anyway. I want a second chance at teenagedom. When I was younger, I had blamed all my shutting down all on myself. Berated myself for my timidness, but no more. I want to fight back for all the other kids out there dealing with their own pain and finding themselves in music. But I don't know how to do that yet. I know the answer is in me somewhere, and it's also in the books and records I have spread on the floor all around me. There's something in these super heavy, grungy riffs I constantly crave. I run my hands over the album sleeves. The Melvins, Houdini, Nirvana's Bleach, Holes, Pretty on the Inside. I think about how all the other girls my age I know like to listen to stuff like Angel Olsen. Pretty, folky kind of rock-ish bands with floaty melodies and weak rhythms. Maybe at my age that is what should do it for me, but it really just doesn't. It makes my skin itch trying to sit still and listen to anything without an unrelenting rhythm, brutal guitars, and an undertone of rage. I crave the feeling of having my brain melted constantly. I pull my black Schecter with the bat-shaped inlays onto my lap and flip on my amp. I tune to drop D, and then I go through the settings on my pedals and find the grungiest distortion tone I can. I keep my head only inches from the speaker. Then I just start shredding sloppy grunge metal riffs at my face. I never feel completely satisfied. As I let my hands subconsciously play, I wonder why this is supposedly okay for a teenager, but not an adult woman who actually needs a release even more. This urge feels like it has to do with how my mom keeps talking about how I need to find a real job and to wash the immature yellow dye out of my hair and grow up, and how I need to get a real apartment instead of this dumpy old house I share with a bunch of other underemployed people. But this is exactly where I want to be right now. That attitude she has is what makes me feel so angry right now. I really feel like a teenager. I let the last chord phase into fuzz and feedback and stare at the faded wood paneling on the wall. Maybe it's a quarter-life crisis I'm having, I think. I want to just skateboard and fall down and hurt myself and play the drums as loud as I can, 
even though I'm not even good. My soul wants to take risks and be loud and messy because I've been so quiet for so long. I get up and sit down in front of my typewriter. I feed in a page and then I start right away. I want to start a girl band that doesn't wear pants. I want my cellulite in your face. I talk about how we've regressed in the media, how girls no longer can turn on MTV and see loud, angry women with guitars like they did all through the 90s. I keep typing. I know what music needs and the world. It needs people with guitars and loud voices to make the kids think it's cool to be different, to not have to look perfect and sexy, even to be a jerk about it and challenge stereotypes. And it kills me that I'm doing nothing personally about it. When kids find a band to jump around to, they'll do anything that band says. And that power can be used for social change. I know people pay attention to me when I'm on stage. I know I have a presence as a performer, and I can finally admit to myself I am a good writer. I can't waste those two things. I ask the page, why am I writing about rock and not playing it? It finally hits me what God or my soul or whatever is telling me to do. It's time for me to front a band. To sing from the bottom of my heart louder than I ever thought I was able to, and to tell everyone who's ever tried to take advantage of me or anyone else to fuck off forever and to show the kids how it's done. I park in the nature trail lot. There are no other cars because it's a Tuesday at 10 a.m. I adjust my constantly twisted feeling leggings and then start jogging along, looking up at the tops of the super tall, skinny pine trees on either side of the trail. I feel like they're looking down and judging me. You're right, I say up to them. I am a loser living in my mom's house. I feel myself slow down and hit a walk. And I'm crying suddenly, feeling empty, not knowing why. I have to completely stop. Words shoot into my head so hard they make me fold over to breathe. I'm thinking about how I haven't been able to use my bass playing in anyone's band since quitting Phil's. What I had wanted more than anything in the world and am only admitting to myself right now how much I did want it was to play in my friend's band, Palehound. I had offered that if her bass player ever quit, I could take over, kind of half-jokingly. Everyone says that it shows. And because, at the time, the current bass player seemed very invested. Plus, I worried that if I revealed how much I actually thought about that, I would sound creepily desperate, which maybe I am. That bassist actually did quit, but I was in Sweden and had very little access to texting at the time because I'd lost my phone. I remember the text message from Ellen in all caps. Chelsea, I have a question for you. I didn't see it for a whole day because of my phone situation and the time difference. When I got home from Sweden, 
the position had been filled with another guy. He seems really, really nice. But when I watched them play at a basement show, all that my jealous, petty mind could think about was how I would play the parts more dynamically and less thumpy and complement the complex, subtle changes in Ellen's songs better. I laser-focused on him, bashing his pick into the string hard on every note. I was angry at myself for being so jealous and tried to just be happy for Ellen to have found someone because I know it's very stressful to be in between band members. I told myself, you have to make your own opportunities, Chelsea, not just suck them from other people, right? But isn't that kind of what everyone in music does? As I try to catch my breath on the trail, my mind starts spiraling. Maybe Ellen knows I'm just not cool enough or good enough. But I think I am. But if I'm good, why does no one ask me to ever play with them? Am I just annoying? All those hours I've practiced, what a waste. Maybe my crappy personality just overwrites all of it. I start thinking about how there were probably bands at UMass Lowell I could have played bass in, but I never came across anyone with my taste. And that one band I was almost in got ruined by the kid's dumb girlfriend being jealous of me. It's already too late for me. I've missed out on playing in cool DIY bands in my late teens and early 20s, and now I'm 26, and that ship has sailed, clearly. I missed out on going up on stage with Green Day when they shone the spotlight on me when I was 15, and I can't find anyone to play music with now either. Everyone good is in too many bands and says they're too busy if I ask them to jam. I try to keep walking to force myself to breathe regularly because otherwise I hold my breath and sob. I'm so glad no one else is on this trail right now. Is there anything else in the entire world than another human being seeing you being visibly upset? Not that I know of. Only the trees can see the word doomed pop into my head over and over and over. Doomed. I am. I miss every opportunity, and other people get them. I never win anything. I never get the prize. I'm just cursed. I say it out loud to the forest. I am doomed to miss out on everything. A combination of my timidity and my straight-up bad luck and bad timing. I think of the no-doubt lyric. I was born two weeks too late, that's why I hesitate. Exactly. Maybe I shouldn't have been born. Maybe that's why I'm so unlucky. I finish my walk with the word doomed ringing in my head like a sad one-word song. I'm sitting on my carpet with my Dan Electro six-string bass in the junk room in my mom's house where I have all of my instruments. I look at the words I wrote down in my notebook, or lyrics, I guess, doomed to miss out on everything. I am, I am. 
I know from therapy that this is an overblown hyperbolic thought and I've worked through it and talked myself out of it. Obviously, I know I'm not actually doomed, but these are the actual words that go through my mind when I'm in that place. They might not be real, but they're valid. They mean something. They stand for a real feeling. God, I hope if anyone hears this song, they get the self-awareness and dark irony here and don't think I'm just really this truly pathetic. Whatever. This is just for me right now. Maybe no one else will ever hear it anyway. Doomed to miss out on everything. I read again, and then I write the next line. Cursed is the worst way to be. To be, be me. I pick up the Dan Electro bass because it's loud unplugged, and I just start on a simple eighth note bass line, the way a Pixie song begins. I feel that one note. Then I feel a dropping in my stomach. That tells me the next note of the song needs to be lower. Yep, there it is. Then I stay on it for a while. Then I feel out the next one. I do it more quickly. Soon, I have a riff. I start singing the words over it, over and over, until the rhythm of the lyrics and the riff mesh together. I start envisioning the rest of the song. It will start out quiet and eerie. But I know that it will need to have the heaviest guitar tone possible at some point. Because I need to transmit that feeling of hating yourself. I know that my six-string bass will be brutal with distortion. I plug in my rat pedal and my Mesa Boogie amp and it creates the most deadly combo for the chorus. I think it's gonna be a good one. I'll have to work out the rest of it with my drummer slash boyfriend soon. I walk into his kitchen to get a glass of water, and I see it there unlocked. My boyfriend's phone on the ceramic yellow edge of the old sink where the drying dishes go. He's just in the other room, but I can't handle trying to wait till he's in the shower again or whatever else anymore. I cannot pretend that trying to get into this phone is not what I think about constantly. I don't care how crazy that makes me. I need this agony to end. I just need proof so that this stress nightmare of knowing I'm being lied to can be over. I have no concrete proof, but I can feel it. I have a dream about him having a girlfriend in New Hampshire nearly every night. 
I unlock the phone. He doesn't even have a passcode on it. And of course, his thread with her is right there in the open. He hasn't deleted any recent messages. Hey baby, I love you. I miss you. From her. I have a cold baby. From him. Oh baby, I'll bring you soup for your tummy wummy and give you kisses tomorrow. A Facebook sticker with hugging koala bears from him to her. A kissy face panda bear from her to him. I instantly feel my body actually vibrating with anxiety. My stomach actually feels like someone punched me. The cliche is true. My heart beats in this insane way that hurts badly in my chest. I look around. A huge kitchen knife sits on the draining board near the phone. I just stare at the sharp blade. My dark moment in high school comes back to me. That feeling of being on the very edge of losing control. That knife is scaring me. If I keep looking at it, I know what will pop into my head. What's already there that I'm trying to ignore. Cutting, bleeding, stabbing. Mostly him, but myself too. The blade moving in a million directions at once. Every roommate in this house getting sliced up in the whiplash. I try to steady my breathing, but I cannot. My heart continues to hurt and cramp, and I feel faint. I want to feel rage, but I just feel panic. I run down the stairs. I go around to grab all of my stuff that I can find, and I throw it into my backpack. Then I go out the back door. I step up to the duct tape mic stand and try to place my feet on the dirt floor between all the cables so that I don't accidentally pull the mic over or unplug myself. Hi. I say into the mic. Uh, we're new, so thanks for letting us us. I say to the basement full of kids in front of me. I turn around and look to see if my cheating, lying, sort of ex-boyfriend is ready to play. He blinks at me. I hate the way he blinks. And before I can call myself an idiot for still being with this guy, I start my explanation to myself in my head. I'm just using him to get this job done, I think. Use him and lose him, right? Yeah, I'm the one in charge. He owes me. He knows the songs, and I couldn't have found anyone else in time to play this show. And I'm just still sleeping with him in a purely physical way. It means nothing. If I wasn't, he'd probably refuse to play with me and be really bitchy to me. I cut off my thoughts. I turn back to the audience and start playing my opening bass riff. My hands are so shaky and clammy it becomes hard to press on the frets. And if I try to think to myself what the next notes in the riff are, I absolutely cannot. Anxiety has turned all thoughts 
into a red, pulsing blob in my mind. And I have to just trust that my muscle memory will do its thing and play the song. I move my focus from me back out to the audience. People's heads start nodding immediately. Some of them know me, so maybe it's polite, but a bunch of them don't. I guess they like this song. I sing about being doomed. When that song's done, I tell the audience that it was about social anxiety and that the next one is going to be pretty obvious what it's about. I feel him cringe behind me. I am punishing him by playing this song and telling the audience to pay attention to the lyrics. Some of them will know it's about him. So, this is my revenge. As I play, I think about her, the 19, now 20-year-old he had been seeing for nearly as long as he'd been seeing me. I remember that she is a better person than I am because after I called her and drove up to visit her and we talked through it and felt this amazing solidarity with each other and promised to both cut him off, well, she did. And I didn't even make it a week. Easier for her because she's up in New Hampshire, which is how he got away with having two girlfriends, but I really have no good excuse. I put that rage and passion into my singing and grit my teeth as I project the words. As the breakdown of the song comes, I flip my head over as hard as I can, and I just feel it all. The anger, the sadness, the anxiety that the three different medications I am now on still cannot cut through enough to make me sleep. The pressure of finishing my graduate thesis while going through this. I train my focus back on the most important fact. I am leading a band. I am playing my songs. I am singing my lyrics. I am the one telling the story. Channeling my feelings into banging around actually feels good. As soon as our set is over, I go out into the crowd and talk to the people I know. I see two brothers who have a band that also played. I really like their band. They're also kind of my favorite people to talk to. I make a dumb joke about their band's name. They both say, yep. They tell me they really like Banana, too. Cool. A few minutes later, as I look around the terrifyingly dirty bathroom that I was trying to avoid having to pee in, I realize drummers can come and go. I am banana. I look down from the stage at the audience below me. There are so many people from Girls Rock Camp here. The other bands playing this show are all made up of volunteers, too. They know what I've been through, what we've all been through, 
how hard it really can feel to simply write your own song and play it in front of other people. And I can feel their support. As I'm setting up, I think back to the one time I played one of my songs for my mom. I had only just started writing songs and was proud that I'd completed four of them. So I sat down with my acoustic guitar on the stairs and practiced one of my newest ones. She came and sat in her bathrobe and watched me sing. When I was done, she gave two responses. One was, do you know how your mouth looks when you sing? It looks weird like this. And then she made this terribly unattractive face with a big wide O-shaped mouth. The second thing she said was, why do all the girls nowadays sing like that? Why do you sing like that? I really don't get it. She has never come to a banana show. The few old towny men at the bar look kind of bewildered, and I love that. I think of all the shows I played as a kid with bands full of boys to crowds full of boys, never feeling fully able to be myself. I think of my time as a music major, never feeling good enough to be in the program, and finally shutting down to the point of quitting. My cello teacher in high school, and how I vowed to give up music forever. The shows I played with that terrible ex-boyfriend, thinking I needed him to do this. I've never felt so free in my life than I do up here, with my friend Lars at the kit behind me. I start in on the first riff, and let the last note ring out. Lars jumps in exactly where they're supposed to without me turning to look at them. Band ESP is a beautiful thing. And even though it's been years since I've seen Matt at this point, I hold a picture of him in my mind as I think about the Facebook messages I exchanged with his current girlfriend who accidentally friended me on Facebook. I feel my core swell, building up the energy to belt the chorus out. And Lars is right there with me as we blast into... Enjoying the tone of my bass. So glad I brought my own amp with me. This is what I need to do. This is what I need to give to people. This is what my life is about. Connecting with other musicians. Connecting with an audience. Finding a way to feel empowered myself. And then delivering that feeling to others. It's amazing how much better it feels to play these songs with Lars than the other seven or so drummers who've backed me up recently. I haven't had any single person be able to commit to being my full-time drummer since I got rid of Jerkface, but I really wish this current lineup could be forever. Lars's smile is so big. The second chorus, I hit the strings even harder. At the 
time to break down. I bang my head so hard that I fold my body completely in half, laughing with joy as I turn my back to the audience and Lars and I rock out together. The treetops look so beautiful this time of year in Boston. Orange and gold with some lasting spots of green here and there contrast the old stone and brick buildings around the common. I'm sitting in Doug's office looking out over this picturesque fall scene as he finishes reading my last installment of my thesis. He's my thesis chair. His classes taught me how to think like a narrative journalist how to have unending patience to spend hundreds of hours getting to know a subject and taking notes on them, and hundreds more hours sorting through those notes, adding to them, and shaping them into something that reads more like a novel than a very long article. I took that advice and those techniques and applied them to myself. And here I am now with the nearly 300-page result. The first six months of writing were almost entirely me researching myself while only fully writing paragraphs of scenes I could remember vividly because they were so charged with emotion. The first time I asked to try out for a band, the time my bandmate slash boyfriend at the time told me I had no friends in front of all of our mutual friends, the time I dove to the floor when a heating service technician saw me playing bass through a window. Then, as I did research, I redid those scenes over and over and over. As I remembered that I would not have used certain words or phrases back then, and that I was not self-aware enough to know that what was happening to me was anxiety. That all I knew at the time was that my stomach hurt and my heart ached, and that sometimes I felt so angry I scared myself and couldn't tell anyone about it. So I rewrote those scenes from that mindset. And then, when I found out that the song I thought would have been playing in a certain scene actually didn't come out until the next year, I would redo that with the added memories that listening to that song over 10 years later would bring up for me or when I found out from my college transcripts that I actually changed my major a semester later than I remembered, and that I took that class with that guy when I was a sophomore, not a freshman. Piece by piece, I expanded the backstory of my own life. I thought I had an okay memory until I really did the work of trying to sit down and write what happened to me from beginning to end. And I saw all the holes and the misrememberings and the periods I completely forgot about. But eventually, through days and nights of writing and rewriting, what started off as a jumble in my head of scribbled notes and things that I knew happened but wasn't exactly sure when, became a real, comprehensible, engaging, scene-based book. It did not 
feel possible when I started. But it is real now, and it is on the table right in front of me. Even though it felt like it could never get done because I had never completed anything anywhere near this complex before, I knew it would because I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for the people this story could help. Doug interrupts my own marveling. So give me your elevator pitch for agents on this. I take a breath. So this book is part memoir of the intense emotions of teenagedom and pain of self-isolation and how playing rock music saved me and became an outlet for those feelings. The other part is an exploration of how society can and should take the need for aggressive outlets for adolescent females more seriously and the presentation of rock music as the perfect solution to that. Great. I know you have a lot to get in there. And, you know, as a father of a daughter and a musician myself, this means a lot to me. Thank you, I say. Can I show you my favorite part? He asks. I look at him, eager. He flips to a paragraph at the end of the first section. I've just finished showing what it was like in my first high school band, and I finally step back from showing rather than telling the story as it happened and switch into a reflective mode. I look at his finger on the page and read, Today, if I was transplanted back into that spot, I would walk away from both Ricky and Nick, find a girl that played percussion in the school marching band, get her to buy a drum kit, ask Colby if she still has that red strat, and start a real band. That moment of reflection is so important, he says. I think you could actually have that at the end of each chapter. It's kind of like you're writing a letter to your younger self. Maybe the end of this whole thing could be you passing on your knowledge and mentoring a young rocker from the girls' rock camp. Maybe even starting a band with her. I just look at him. A million possibilities start exploding in my head at once. Dear young rocker, this isn't really an ending as the memoir of a living person can never really have one. I can't pretend I've learned all of my lessons or that I've perfected life at this point, not even just my musical life. Nothing's wrapped up with a neat bow because the only thing that stays the same about life is that it's always changing, always messy and full of ups and downs and surprises good and bad. And only in writing about life years later and then using a ton of clever editing can it possibly sound like a coherent, evenly paced story. Although, over the course of shaping those first few writings into this podcast here, you have gotten much better at doing just that. I'd say you could probably teach other people how to do it even. And you already know that. But at this point, I feel like I'm writing these letters to our listeners as much as you. So now, I want to say, Dear Rockers, 
thank you for being with me on this journey. Knowing you're there listening rather than me just sitting here writing into the void like I did when I started out has shaped the story in a good way. When I first started this, I thought, who am I to give anyone advice about anything? I wasn't sure if the letter parts of the episodes were worth it at all. All I knew is that I definitely had some things I wanted to tell my own younger self. But it turns out that those things are pretty universal and transcend the things that seemingly divide us, such as age, gender, ethnicity, or geographic location. There are probably even people who enjoy this podcast who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum from each other, and I absolutely love that. After receiving hundreds of messages from you, I now know that you actually do enjoy my nuggets of wisdom and reassurance and relate to me more than I ever thought anyone ever did. So, I think here in my last letter, I'm going to take the chance to state some of my all-time biggest lessons. These are the things I remind myself of almost daily. First off, stop worrying about being selfish or thinking about yourself too much. This one's a two-parter. One, you cannot control any other human's thoughts or actions. So you might as well let go of stressing over them constantly. It can actually be a really freeing feeling to deeply realize this, to realize you don't have control. So you might as well just let it go and not take it personally. It's not your burden to bear what other people do. Once you stop taking things personally, you are free. The only things you can control in this world are your own thoughts and actions. And those are actually everything. So, when someone does or says something that triggers a response in you, rather than endlessly getting annoyed or sad or frustrated by it, and what they should have done and what you should have said to them about it, just focus on yourself. Focus on your own cultivation of being a good, mindful person rather than why Becky is so rude. Use these moments as a challenge to work on yourself. Think about how you can cultivate even more empathy and care in your own life and give back your attention to the good things you want to do rather than the bad things other people are doing. And part two of stop worrying about being so selfish is everything you do must be for you, even helping other people. As selfish as that sounds, if helping another person helps you feel good and to be the person you want to be, then help them. If helping a person who is constantly nagging you and demanding more and more is draining your energy and making it hard for you to do the things you care about or be the person you want to be, then you don't have to help them. Because in the long term, doing the right thing for this person and helping them to grow might actually mean saying no right now in this moment. 
and never make decisions or act in a certain way or even shape the things you create in a certain way in order to impress someone or avoid criticism of other people. Because you won't be happy with yourself, even if it gets you off the hook with that person for a moment. Another piece of advice I can't say enough times is anxiety speeds you up, slow yourself down. Next one on the list, remember, you will always know what you need to do from your intuition, even if you sometimes have trouble hearing it. Be quiet, let it speak. And last and most importantly, I just want to reiterate the main message of the greatest advice giver of all time, Mr. Fred Rogers. You are perfect and deserving of love just the way you are. I love you. Hey, everybody who's listened to and supported the first two seasons of this podcast. Thank you so much. Because of you, there will be a Dear Young Rocker season three. I'll tell you more later. Make sure to keep paying attention to this feed and to follow Double Elvis for updates as they come. Thank you to everyone who helped make season two of Dear Young Rocker possible. I'll forget to name some people here, but you know who you are if you even so much as told me good job. That includes, of course, my audio partner in crime this season, Colin Fleming, as well as everyone from the Double Elvis team. Executive producer Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, president of Double Elvis, and Jamie Damas. And since I wrote this thing about my life and included many people who've lived part of it with me, thank you everyone who I've mentioned, whether I changed your name or not, for shaping my story in your own way. I want to thank my thesis advisors, Doug Wynott and Jabari Asim, who helped me shape this story in its first form. My current bandmates and Banana and all 10 of my previous drummers. Thanks everyone at Girls Rock Campaign Boston for being endlessly supportive and helping me realize what I wanted to write about. Plus, everyone at iHeart who helped get the DYR message out there to new listeners. Thank you all. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.